I want to talk about selective memory. If all we did was dwell on the bad past memories of our lives, then life would be pretty miserable. <laughs> pretty miserable. I mean, who wants to wallow all day long in the mistakes, the poor choices, the sinful decisions that we have made in the past? And on the other hand, it's not wise either to be a Pollyanna, a person who never wants to admit that something is gloomy or hurtful or bad or heartrending. This is the kind of person, if you serve them lemons, they'd make lemonade out of it. Because they're always thinking in terms, as the eternal optimist, Well, they have a false sense of happiness and they never quite realize the seriousness of life and the consequences of poor choices and sinful actions. I mean, think about it. Being cheerful when the world is crashing in around you is not necessarily a sign of piety. It may be more a sign of naivete. Such unrealistic evaluations of life may dull the senses to the pain of the reality, but they, they create their own pain. And I'm thinking of here of the pain of, a, of attending gullibility and denial. I'm calling this selective memory. Selective because this kind of person picks and chooses from life's experiences to paint a picture that is more rosy than reality and less dire than the reality really portrays. As an example of this, I want you to consider Israel as a nation after the exodus, after the wilderness trek, after experiencing God's provision of manna from heaven for food and water from the rock for drink. I mean, these were phenomenal provisions in a desert setting. But Nehemiah writes, or rather Moses writes in, in Numbers chapter 11, the rabble, I'm writing, reading scripture, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat, we remember, now listen, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt at no cost. Hmm. Also, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. This is an astonishing statement indeed, if you think about it. God sent Moses to emancipate them from the slavery and the indentured servitude to the Egyptian task matters. And what is it they choose to remember? Fish, <laughs> cucumbers, melons, leeks, garlic, and so on. At, this is their words, no cost. No cost. How did they define cost? Well, because they did not have to go to the local market and buy their produce like the freemen of Egypt. Did that mean that their meals were free? Moses records their plight when the new Pharaoh came to power that had no recollection of Joseph. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. 
They made their lives bitter with hard work in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. Well, in the fields is where the produce would grow, right? The cucumbers, the leeks, the garlic, the onion. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Exodus 1, verse 11 through 14. No wonder God said in later years, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. Remember. Well, who could forget, we would think. Ah, uh, but Israel did forget. And not only did they forget, their recollection of life there was a more pleasant tale than what the facts warranted. They put too much weight on fish and onions and cucumbers, which comprised their diet, and too little weight on the torn flesh and the calloused hands and the flogged backs from the taskmaster's whips, even death, which it costs them to pay for the food they consumed. Nothing was free. Everything came at a great price. Everything was at the cost of hard, back-breaking, grueling labor. We would say blood, sweat, tears. And now, in the desert, with a bread that rained from heaven and settled on the ground like dew and water that flowed copiously from a rock which followed them wherever they journeyed, neither of which they had to labor to obtain, short of gathering the manna in baskets and holding a bucket under the fountain that poured from the rock. And what was their perspective? If only we had meat to eat. Now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this man. Whenever people add the word this to something, this manna, this water, this journey, those are words of contempt. It's interesting that bread and water and healthy, wholesome bodies that did not age or get sick, and clothes and sandals that didn't wear out, to name more, was not enough for these people to be thankful. Reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who opposed Hitler and was confined to a number of concentration camps by the Nazis in World War II, how thankful he was to receive a bowl of watered-down soup and a moldy piece of bread to eat. What I'm saying is that Israel had a selective memory. They remembered the food of Egyptians' rich farms, and they forgot, they forgot the blood and the tears by which they paid for every morsel they ate. And they forgot something else. They forgot the hard-fought battle of wills between God and Pharaoh, and the mighty miracles God had to perform to secure their freedom. In later years, when the nation of Israel was but a memory, Nehemiah reflected, Here's what he writes. They refused to listen 
And they failed, I'm reading scripture, they failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, glorious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, and the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Nehemiah 9, verse 17 and following. And then Moses takes us back to the earlier date of the Exodus itself. And this is what he writes. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord, your God. His majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed, the things he did to the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country, what he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea, as they were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place, but it was your own eyes that saw these great things the Lord has done. Deuteronomy 11, verses 2 through 7. Now what these two biblical authors, Nehemiah and Moses, are saying is that the exodus itself and the sustaining providence of God thereafter required the mighty hand of God to execute. Pharaoh did not say to Moses, Oh, sure, take your people, go. May the force be with you. <laughs> No, time and again, he promised one thing and delivered another. He promised liberty and inflicted more servitude. Pharaoh budged from his enthroned decision, entrenched in his heart to free the Israelites, never. Only after God took his firstborn son in judgment. Nine other plagues might have moved less obstinate men, but not Pharaoh. His pride would not let him bend to the will of God. Israel had a selective memory. They remembered some of the nice times they had in Egypt, and they forgot about all the bad times. They remembered the variety of food and they forgot the bloody price it cost them. I'm wondering, do we do any better? Do we point to the past with rosy colored glasses, making it look more rosy than it was? Do we whitewash the wicked things that we did to make our conscience feel better? Does God somehow become the brunt of our complaints when he deserves our great love and admiration? 
for his sustaining and miraculous grace. Israel's selective memory angered God because it was unjust. It blamed God for their own sinful attitude. You can do that with things of the past. You can remember what you want and ignore the rest. You can color your past as rosy as you want it when it's not so rosy. You can color your own heart pretty good when it's not so good. We can do those things. They had a selective remembrance. When it comes to God, and this is so beautiful, he has a selective forgetfulness. Not memory, a selective forgetfulness. Israel came within a hair's breadth a number of times of God's of God just wiping them off the face of the map. Do you know that about their history? While Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, what were the people doing? They were worshiping a golden calf of their own making at the foot of the mountain and fornicating in gross orgies like the pagan cultures. Everything vile, everything unholy they engaged in, and God's anger ran so hot that he said to Moses, and I'll read it for you, I've seen these people. The Lord said to Moses, they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation, Moses. What's he saying? He's saying, step back, stand clear, Look out, I'm about to exterminate these ingrates. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. And here's what he said. Oh Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, Oh, it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Exodus 32, verse 9 and 5. Moses intercede for sinful Israel with God. And he basically said something like this, God, you can't do that. You can't wipe your people off the face of the earth. If you do that, the Egyptian will say, what kind of God is that? They might have had it tough down here in Egypt. We beat, it, beat their backs, but they did have food and water. And he just took them out into the desert to this mountain and killed them all. Do you know you can reason with God? You can. You can use his own word in reasoning with him. Again, at the time of Korah, the judgment of Korah for his sin of rebellion, 250 ordinary men interceded into the priest's office, ah, not something they should have done, by offering incense, and God struck them all dead. 250, boom, gone. And we read, this was to remind the Israelites that no one except the descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. Number 16, verse 35 and following. Well, this didn't sit very well with the people. 
We read, the next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. Number 16, verse 41. Drop down to verse 44 and we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, put incense in it, along with the fire from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has already started. So Aaron did as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and the plague had already started among the people. But Aaron offered the incense, and he made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead. There's a priest interceding. And the plague stopped. The plague stopped. Number 16, verse 44 and following. Once again, Moses and Aaron interceding, and their intercession halted the wrath of God, and his anger was abated. Now, none of us would argue that God had no right to be so angry as to determine to annihilate Israel. They had lived up to God's definition of them as being stiff-necked and rebellious. That's what they were. They opposed God at every turn. They were self-centered, religious people who substituted their own brand of righteousness for God's. But instead of annihilation, God forgave Israel's sins and chose to forget their transgressions. It's called mercy, brethren. Mercy is undeserved grace. You receive a kindness you do not deserve. You receive a compassion that defies the seriousness of your offense. Mercy. And the biblical authors reflect on this many, many times. The psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of our youth. In my rebellious ways, according to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity. Though it is great. Psalm 25, verse 6 and following. Contrition does lead to forgiveness. Isaiah writes, O Lord, you are our father. We We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins. Forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. Isaiah 64, verse 8, verse 9. Jeremiah voiced a similar prayer. Have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hope for peace. But no good has come for a time of healing. But there's only terror. Oh Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us. Do not break it. Jeremiah 14, verse 19 and following. Wow. Habakkuk writes in chapter 3, verse 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, O Lord. 
Renew them in our day and in our time. Make them known in your wrath. Remember mercy. Habakkuk. I want you to know that in all these texts, the authors are not criticizing God for a judgment undeserved. No, 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 no. They know that they and the people they represent have sinned against God in grievous ways, but they are pleading with God to remember just who it is that he is judging, who he's about to hurt. It's none other than those who acknowledge God as their father. Isaiah 64, verse 6. The God who made a covenant, a promise to them, as his people, Jeremiah 14, verse 21. And so they plead their case, not on the basis of innocence. <laughs> they can't do that. But rather, but rather, as the psalmist pleaded, for the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Yeah. On the basis of God's faithfulness. Psalm 25, verse 11. I want you to get the principle here. The principle says something like this. God, we deserve everything you're dishing out upon us. But we're pleading with you, do not remember our sins. Remember instead that we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond, o measure, or, or beyond measure, O Lord. Isaiah 64, verse 8. What is that? It's an appeal to selective forgetfulness. Forget our rebellion. Remember your faithfulness to your covenant promise. What was God's response? No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, I'll know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. They plead for this, and God says, I'll do it. Verse 15 of our text says, The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, verse 15 and following. In other words, forgiven sins are already atoned for, and God may forget what he has forgiven. Isaiah wrote, Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Isaiah 44, verse 21 and following. Micah writes, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread out sins underfoot, our sins underfoot. You will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. 
You will be true to Jacob. You will show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Micah 7, verse 19 and 20. The psalmist puts it this way, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows that we are how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. And then the wind blows over and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Psalm 103, verse 12 through 16. Now I ask this question, how can God, because he's God now, how can God forget anything? You ever think about that? I mean, doesn't his trade of omniscience teach us that he knows all things? And do we not have verses that say, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4 verse 13. I just read it for you. Well, the answer is that all those scriptures we read which say that God forgets our sins or removes them from his sight or buries them in the sea, they're all anthropomorphisms. Big word here in theology. It's a big word, but it has a simple and precious truth. Anthropos, O-S, is the Greek word for man. Anthropology, if you go to uh, school somewhere, usually in university, you might take a course in anthropology. That's the study of man. Morphism means to change or to alter. So a scriptural anthropomorphism is God speaking his will in such a way to adapt it or couch it in the language of men so we can comprehend it. Anthropomorphic. God changes it to relate to our understanding because we're dealing with divine things. So, of course, God knows all things. He does not suffer from dementia. He does not suffer from Alzheimer's. He does not suffer from amnesia. He forgets nothing. So when the Bible says that God remembers our sins no more, it is saying in our language God will treat us in such a way that it will appear to us that God has forgotten our sin. He wants so much to convey that to us. That he uses our language. It is, in fact, a selective forgetfulness. A forgetfulness which God has chosen to exercise towards the people he loves, the people with whom he has entered into covenant. And as we have learned, he does this for his own glory. For in keeping his promises and in remaining constant to his love, God proves himself true and faithful based upon his own character and not upon how well you perform. Wow. This is grace. We all need his grace to survive his just wrath. 
The psalmist puts it this way, and here's a good definition. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. I'm reading Bible. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12. What a marvelous, marvelous verse in the Bible. How then do we deal with the memories that haunt us? Well, we remember firstly that God's selective forgetfulness is based upon a selective love. There's a stark contrast in the Bible between how God relates to the children of promise and how he relates to the nations. I mean, even within Abraham's descendants, one generation removed, God made this declaration. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, well, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert of jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Malachi 1, verse 2 through 4. The two New Testament account adds this explanation. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she, the mother, was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, verse 11 through 13. Now this certainly does not mean that Jacob lived a life as a saint. Now, <laughs> he was a scoundrel. He was a liar. He was a deceiver, a cheat, a wheel of dealer, greedy, self-absorbed, until God saved him. But that, you see, is the point. God set his affection on Jacob. For nothing noteworthy in Jacob, but simply on the premise of God's sovereign choice. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I compassion. Don't question me. I'm God. I can have mercy on whoever I want. I can have compassion on whoever I want. Or not. God's selective forgetfulness is based on his selective love. May I say redemptive love. Not leniency, but love that made atonement for the sin that is forgotten. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 13. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wow. God's selective forgetfulness is based on his selective love. And then secondly, remember that you have a sordid past, but God has forgiven and forgotten. No matter what your past was, if you're his child, he has forgiven and forgotten. Paul called upon the Ephesian brethren to keep some data in their memory bank. And in their memory bank, here's what he says to them: Remember <laughs> that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners of the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God, in the world. Remember those things. But now, 
Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Do you see how Paul uses memory? It's not used to cause you to wallow in the regret of a guilty conscience for your sinful past. No. Paul uses memory to cause you to remember the glorious, transforming grace of God in Christ Jesus whose blood has made peace with God and with one another. We have it in our text, verse 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. In what? In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Folks, once God has set his affection on you, and it was an eternity past, there's no turning back on God's part. There's no changing of his mind. There's no disowning of you. There's no threat of future judgment. There's no condemnation coming. Paul writes it this way, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 verse 1 and 2. I would say this is a profitable recollection. It's a memory bolstered by the grace of God. This is what God wants you to remember and to recall and to think about. And the devil comes along and says, ah, yeah, but you're such a wicked sinner. You said this, you did that, you went there, and so on, so on, so on, so on. And the apostles say, no, 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 don't, don't go that way with your memory. Remember what God has done for you, the sinner. Remember the grace. Remember his mercy. He knows all about your sin. But he has chosen to forget those things. Place them under the blood of Christ. Atone for those things. He's removed from his memory your sins as far as the east is. From the West. Now you are to do the same. And you're to do it rejoicing in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have called upon us to deal with our past memories in a way that looks at them through the cross of Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a Savior. What a wonderful redemption we have in him. How sufficient is his blood, his death to pay for all of our iniquity. Lord, do not allow Satan to use our past to beat us down. If we're going to use memory, may we use it to think about what God has done for us in the person of his son. And that what God has done for us has no change to it. 
will never be revoked. God will never change his mind. Because he's faithful when we're not. Thank you for the truth of your word. May we relish it. May we be warmed by the truth and may we dwell on it. Help us to defeat Satan and his desire to make us feel miserable because of our sin. Help us to rejoice in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the Red Hymnal. 703. Seven hundred three in Trinity. What a great hymn this is. Loved with everlasting love. Have you ever thought about that? Loved with everlasting love. Drawn by grace that loved to know. Spirit sent from Christ above. Thou dost witness it. It is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine. In a love that cannot cease, I'm his, and he is mine. Let's stand together as we sing.
he sets his affections upon, hey, it's there eternally. God isn't like this, you know, give you something and take it back. Give you something and take it back. Men do that. We're sinners. Oh, I changed my mind. Take it back. Not God. He knows you're a sinner. He's died for every last sin. Set you free. We can rejoice in that. Well, tonight we call it music night. What does that mean? It means you get to sing all your favorite hymns. That's what it means. That'll be at 6.30. Now we're going to eat at 6. If you don't want to come and eat, at least come at 6.30 for the music night. We'll probably have some duets, maybe some souls. I don't know. We have a lot of people missing today. But we'll have a good time. Jared will lead us in that tonight. And it starts at 6. If you can come and bring all we're asking for finger food tonight is hot dogs and buns and some chalk, some chips. Keep it simple. So we're up here by 6.30 ready to go and sing. You'll be out of here by 7.30. So we'll, we should have a good time rejoicing and worshiping the Lord in song. We are dismissed. <laughs>